Jim. Oh, you know what I forgot? What up, y'all? What's going on? Happy, uh, happy Sunday. It's, it's, it's interesting doing it on a Sunday. SpongeBob 1955. I see you more better. 1773. Kim Michelle. Yeah. Rave, what up? Kush, what up? I see y'all. Uh, Nika King in the building. I saw the hair was laid, uh, Nika. Got that blowout. My mine grew back. It's growing back. It's, it's not Nika King level, but it's getting there. Huh? It is getting there. Yeah, what up? Hand on hand on the pop. Dip, what up? I'm on already. What up? Official Courtney Michelle, what up? Who else? Who else? Who else is here on a Sunday night? Rennell, I see you, son. I, did I say happy, happy holidays to y'all? Uh, I think I sent Ingrid a uh, message. Oh, Gina, Gina is here. Look at that. That's what I'm talking about. People, people in the UK. That's what I'm talking about. Calvin, I see you, son. What up? Ron Tucker, 2692. What up? Dang! Yasheray, what's going on? Happy New Year's. Yeah, yeah. Happy New Year to you. Happy birthday, Sigma Show. What's up? Yo, it's, it's great to see you, sis. <laughs> Good to see I you. I think the last, look, the last time I saw you was at the BK Loves Michael Jackson joint. Oh, uh, no, my no, God. Afro that was Punk. Three years ago? Yeah, and yeah, in Afropunk. We saw, we saw each other Saturday and then Sunday at Afropunk. What up, Godfrey? I see you. What's up? The days when we were able to go out and be around people and dance to music in public yeah. spaces without yeah. fear of death. Oh. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Way back in the days when we could what go out day? and not die. Before the plague of 2020. That's what it's going to be in, in like years from now when we're, when we're grandparents. We're going to be like, I remember the year was 2020 and we uh, were all on punishment. Uh, Oh man, we were all inside. So how you, how you been, Gina? You good? Very good, Matt. Look, considering that uh, twenty twenty was such a clusterfuck, uh, it's not been too bad for me. Right. Thank God for television. Yes, <laughs> yes. Thank yes. God for the fact that I've got a TV show. Yes, yes. Which, which, which we, you know what, and. and First, let me let me give you let me give the show a proper intro and then you your proper uh your proper introduction because I always my like to uh, big up give my, my guests. Yeah, give, give them give them their proper intros. <laughs> um, welcome for those that don't know. Welcome to another episode of Father Market Protocol Live. We normally do this Monday night, but I know somebody got to work tomorrow. So I said, which is a beautiful thing in this economy during the quarantine. So yeah. I said we're gonna do it on Sunday night. Um, I do this. I started doing this. This is episode number 38. We started in April. Uh, wow. Shout out to my man, Godfrey, that motivated me to do this. And I just, I, I started doing it as as a way not only to kick it with some of my friends in entertainment, but also to give give the people some entertainment and also some insight, because I know a lot of people don't understand what what many of us entertainers have gone through to get where we are, and my yeah. guest tonight is is no exception. My guest <laughs> tonight, um, uh, originally uh, from the UK, born of Nigerian parents, um, 
she, she was a four-time Best Comedian Award winner at the Black Entertainment and Comedy Awards in the UK. Uh, <laughs> live at the Apollo, the Big Talent Show, Mock the Week, the Lenny Henry Show, which if you if you don't know, now you know. Um, First Amendment uh, stand-up comedy, Last Comic Standing, Crashing, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and Mr. <laughs> In-Between. Uh, uh, and multiple comedy specials, Skinny Bitch, Laughing to America, Ticking Boxes, and you can catch her on the most recent season of the stand-ups and the animated films, Brahma High and Early Man, but even bigger than all that, she is the co-creator, uh, writer, producer, and also co-star on Bob Hart's Abishola on CBS every Monday night. Big up my sister, Gina Yashere in the building. <laughs> And you did mention my tunes on Tuesday. <laughs> a lot of people are mentioning it. They're going, tunes on Tuesday. I was like, yeah, tunes on Tuesday. Tunes, tunes on Tuesday. Every well, explain to explain to the people um, that that aren't familiar with uh, your tunes on Tuesday what it is exactly. Every Tuesday, I play a tune on Instagram, and uh, it started off as just a little thing that I used to do. I mean, it was a TV show I used to watch as a kid in England. Uh, I think that Fox is bringing it back. And okay. I, I watched the show as a kid in England, you know, where people used to have to guess the records. But it was never called right, tune. Right, right, yeah. And that it was never tune that I knew. So I started doing my own version of Tunes on Tuesday. I called it Tunes on Tuesday. Every Tuesday, I just play a record from my... It's a soundtrack to my life. So all the, right. like, all the stuff that I was dancing to when I was 19, 20, when, all the music I was doing, the running man to, all the stuff I listened to as a kid... So I only pick tunes that I know. I don't just pick any tunes. Only tunes that I know uh, that are from my era. And I play every Tuesday. I've been doing it for the last, I'm going to say, three years. I started it three years ago. And every Tuesday, I play a tune. And then people just have to guess the tune. And we go back and forth on Instagram. It's just a little fun thing I started for myself. Yeah. And it's just got bigger and bigger. And, uh, you know, people are starting to... I've, I've, I've sort of gained a, a catchphrase. I didn't even know it was a catchphrase. I just shout it anyway. Who is it? And now people are saying it to me on the street, and people are just hearing me in their head. Who is this? No, Shazam. Under 30s, yeah. don't even bother. This ain't your guess. You're like so JJ. Become, it's become a thing, you know? You got your old catchphrase. You're like JJ. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, let me, you know what? Let me. Because you did point out, I do remember um, in the States, it was called Name That Tune. It was probably originally in the UK and we it's brought it over here. It's a British show originally, I think, yeah. Do, do you think, because that show is coming back, do you think that your tunes on Tuesday um, might have inspired that? Yeah, and they should have called me. They didn't even call me. I didn't even get a call to say, do you want to come and be a guest on this shit? And I was like, are you right. serious? I've been doing this for three, four years. And didn't even get a call, man. I'm right. so mad. So mad. Yeah, no, rightfully so. Because you're full of shit. No, because Hollywood, you know what? Hollywood will do that where people, some some young producer will follow you and go pitch something that you <laughs> did. And they call it and they calling it name that tunes, T-O-O-N-T. And I'm like, oh come on. You're blatantly that obviously somebody's yeah. been watching my Instagram and going right. to yeah, yeah, right, yeah, yeah. That's a straight, straight jacket. That's a gaffle. <laughs> right, yeah. 
But, you know, I never came up with the show. It was a show that was on TV in England in the, like, 70s. So I can't even claim it's my idea. I just sort of did a more updated version. I did my own version of it for, for Instagram. So I can't even complain because it was never my show in the first place. But it's just weird that I've been doing it for a few years and it's been building popularity and people are loving right. it. And then suddenly they're coming up with the show again and, right. and changing the name, the tunes, spelling it, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 a jack. <laughs> that's, jack. that's called a Hollywood jack. Yeah, it is. It is. But, but don't, don't matter. You, you you know you're busy. You're working. It, it'd be nice, but but you're busy and working. And uh, and I and you know what? You have been of all the comics I know. You were one of the first comics, like strong comics, too. I should I should make make that point. Strong yeah. comic that utilized social media, Instagram. Like I was a big fan of um, watching anytime you went on the road, obviously you <laughs> haven't been able Gina, to- Gina's hotel room. Yes, <laughs> yes. Where Gina would go on, anytime she went to a new city, she was on the road, she was on tour. She would, uh, for, for anyone that's ever been to a hotel, right? She would break down, no. No, no. And, and she would tell you things to look out for when you go into a hotel room. Um, you would say, you were sanitizing before COVID was a thing. Before COVID. I had a COVID protocol yes. pre-COVID because I'm OCD yes. and a germaphobe. Like, right. that's why Jezebellas, I used to bring my own bed sheets, pillow and pillowcase. I had my special slippers for the shower. Special slippers for the room because my feet ain't touching hotel carpet. The thought right. of my skin touching any part of that room fills me with dread. So yeah. I used to bring sometimes a sleeping bag, sometimes my own sheets. I'd, I'd, I'd bring sanitizer, I spray down the door handles, the light switches, everything. So I've been doing this stuff for years. And people yeah. used to laugh at me. Like I'd get on the plane and people would be walking past me on the plane and laughing at me because I'm spraying down the seats. Right. The head, the cushion, I'm spraying the vents, putting stuff in the right. vents so that the, there's no jerk. Yeah. So they used to laugh at me. But now, who's right. laughing? Who's <laughs> laughing? Nobody. Now they're all going back watching my old videos for tips. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So I could do this thing called hashtag Gina's Hotel Rooms. And every single hotel I checked into, I would review the hotel on cleanliness, on the bed sheets, because I don't like when they just put them gross comforters and they don't put it in. Because them comforters, they never wash them. They never they wash, wash them. them. Right. And they just put them between two sheets. It's so disgusting. As soon as I get in a hotel room, I put my gloves on and I get that comforter and I just throw it on the floor in the corner. I don't care if it's, I don't care if I'm in Alaska and it's minus 27 degrees. I would rather sleep naked in the middle of a blizzard than let those nasty comforters Touch my skin. Ugh. Have you did have you ever had a hotel push back that that you gave them a negative review? No, but what happened when I started to go to hotels and people knew I was coming, they'd leave me cute little gift baskets baskets oh, and no. things. And I remember one time I was in a hotel and um, it was one of them hotels I found a stain that looked suspiciously like a blood stain oh. on the street, and I tweeted about it. And I tell you, the moment I sent out that tweet, 
There was a knock on my door from somebody from the hotel. They were like, we've come with new shades. She took them. <laughs> so they knew they were watching for my, my Twitter and my Instagram to make sure that I didn't besmirch right. their hotel room. So it's come in handy in situations like that because they don't want, yeah. you know, they don't want that. I, did, I was uh, approached by, I think it was Hotels.com a few years ago, approached yeah. me to maybe to do like a sponsorship thing. But I was like, but be aware, I'm going to be 100% honest. Just because you're sponsoring me, Right. Doesn't mean that I'm, not, I'm going to be 100% honest about it. Right. And then that went away. I never heard from them again. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're yeah. like, oh, she's one of those. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, so, but I've been doing that forever. I'm sure that somebody's going to, Fox is probably going to come up with another TV show called, uh, I don't know, Jamie Fox's Hotel Rooms. And I'll be like, really? <laughs> really? Is this what we're doing? <laughs> so, so Gita, taking it back, has the um, you know, because you're not only uh, you know, on a show and and working on a show, but you're also a working stand up. So, um, how did the entire COVID quarantine affect you? Did it affect you detrimentally? Did you lose gigs because of it? Did it give you time off that you actually were looking forward to? Oh, I, I've had no time off. So. I've been working on a TV show for the last year, so you know I'm over, I'm an exec producer, writer, and actor on the show. So even when yeah. I don't have hiatus, the actors go off on hiatus. They have their breaks. I don't get a break because I'm writing the show as well. So I'm working all year round. Um, so when COVID hit, it it hit when we finished shooting the season in like March. We lost the last two episodes of season one. It's supposed to be 22 episodes. We got shut down after 20. So I, I was glad that we got 20 episodes out there and people yeah. were really loving it. So I had, from March, when we were going, going into hiatus after the first season, to June, when we were coming back to start writing the show again, I had bare shows booked. I couldn't wait to get back to my stand-up. Because when you're doing the show, it's a lot. I'm working nine o'clock. I'm tired. Yeah. So I don't get to go out and do stand-up as much as I'd like to. Because after you've been in the writer's room all week, the last thing you want to do on the Saturday is then go, oh, these two days break that I've got, I'm going to go out and do stand-up. So, you know, I try to do stand-up every couple of weeks. I'd make myself go out at the weekend and do shows to keep myself sharp. But when we closed down for the end, I had a load of shows booked from March 2020 to June. Back to back, I was coming back to New York to do Gotham Comedy Club. I was going to be doing the yeah. cellar, and I had shows all around the country. I had that Netflix were doing a massive uh, comedy festival, and I was booked for that. And all of that just disappeared mm. overnight. So I lost all of my live work. So, right. yeah, three months of work just disappeared like that. Wow. Um, but I found myself, uh, I, I, I count myself very fortunate in that I still had the TV show. Yeah. You know, and I knew uh, we got season two, so I knew I was coming back to season two, so I knew that I'd, the rest of my 2020 was pretty much set as long as right. none of us caught COVID and our show got shut down. So I've been working consistently through 2020 uh, on the show. So I count myself as super blessed, super yeah. lucky. But yeah, definitely, I lost all my life work. And I just, I, you know, I got the TV show and I was like, I'm going to invest put my money in stocks and shares and things and do what the white boys do, invest my money in, and all this. And COVID hit and I must have lost about a hundred grand in the overnight 
of the oh. value of my stocks overnight. I'm like, motherfuckers, the, the moment I put my money into stocks, that's when everything just collapses. I was so mad. But I was like, you know what? These were long-term investments. Let me just wait. I'm sure the money will come back. And right, it did come back. Over the last eight months, my, the money's come back. But okay, I, good, was, good, good. I was very upset. Good. No, I, no I, listen, I, I know because... Because Harris reminds me every time that <laughs> that for the last nine months he's like, man, it's, I don't know, <laughs> and I'm like, it's, it's gonna come back, dog. Don't worry. Yeah, so I just had to let it go. So it was a little bit touch and go there, but I was like, you know what? I'm in a much better position. I know a lot of my stand-up friends are suffering right now, so I consider myself fortunate right. in that I'm right. still working. 2020 has been good for me in that I've continued working. I've had a TV show. My, you know, I've been able to pay my mortgage, pay my bills, and it's, you know, I've not been too badly affected by it. So I just count myself as very, thank God for telling Hallelujah. Hallelujah. <laughs> Hallelujah. And you know what? You know, because, you know, you said, you said you're fortunate, but it also is the result of, of years of hard work. Cause as, oh, yeah. as long as I've known you, um, you've always been, and it's also been very inspirational to, to myself and other comics because, you know, you, you produced, I think I, we, you told me years ago how you produced your own standup specials, which I, yeah. I thought that was amazing. And that's what I want. I want to take it back to England and then move forward through your career. So you started, oh you start, first of all, that's the puppy. I've got a new puppy and she's <laughs> She's tearing a paper bag to pieces. Continue. Continue, D. Ignore the dog. I ain't mad at that. What's up? <laughs> she's a nightmare. She's pissed on my brand new sheepskin rug twice. Well, that's, that's what happens when you have a new dog, a new puppy with sheepskin on the floor. And, and she knows she did it. She'll pee on it. I went to the toilet and I was like, I'm going to the bathroom. I'll be two minutes. And I rolled up the rug. I was like, don't pee on my rug. I came back and she's just looking at me like this. <laughs> and I come back and I was like, what have you done? What have you done? And I looked down, big wet patch. Brand new sheepskin rug. I'm so mad at this dog. But I can't let her go now. It's too late. <laughs> she knew. It's, it's too late. <laughs> she, anyway, she gave yeah. me the eyes. Yeah, I know. It's just... Oh yeah, back to the specials. Yeah, I um Well no no, even taking it back before then, because you know, you come from and, and you know, that's I think you and I bonded because my wife is, is uh British yes. um, by way of Jamaican parents. And so um as soon as I heard you, I was like, Oh, you know, Chase, you know. <laughs> and so um, you know, being from a traditional Nigerian family, um you being an engineer is no surprise, but how did you go from, how, first of all, how did you not only go from engineering to comedy, but how did you tell your, your parents that you were doing that? So uh, I left my job as an engineer, mm -hmm. and I was, it, there was a little interim. I took redundancy, and redundancy happened in the summer. So I was like, I'm going to have the summer off, enjoy spending this redundancy money, and then come winter, I'll go get another job. And it was in that summer. But I fell into stand-up. I was like, well, everybody's always told me I was funny. Let me try this whole stand-up thing that everybody's been talking about. And then that's, in that summer, I fell in love with stand-up. So, and then I started doing it. And I was like, well, I did it for a few months. 
And when the, you know, people offer money, come and do my show for 10 bucks. Come and do my... So I was like, when that runs out, I'll go back to work. And then it just never ran out. It just kept going and going and going. So then I was like, oh, this stand-up thing, there's something in it. I really like this. I want to keep doing this as long as possible. So how I told my mum, I was like, look, I'm doing this comedy thing. I'm, so, I'm a qualified engineer. I can go back to engineering any time. This is just a little thing I want to do just to see... And my mom was like, so you're leaving engineering. You want to be a clown. You want to be a clown? I, I don't get it. Then fine, you're an engineer. Do your little stupid clown business for a few months and then go back to engineering. But I never went back. That was 25 years ago. Never went back. And then I got on television. So once I got on television, my mom was like, oh, this is, oh, she's on television. Oh, this is. And once I got on TV with people that my mother recognized. Right, like, right, oh, right. Oh, oh. And then it then was fine. After that, she was super proud of it. What was what was your first TV spot? It was a show called The Big Big Talent Show. Big it was hosted Talent. by a guy called Jonathan Ross, who was kind of like the British Leno, big talk show okay. host. And it was a it was a talent show. And I'd done a sort of a stand-up, there was this comedy competition in England called the Hackney Empire, New Act of the Year. So the Hackney Empire is this old vaudeville theatre that's been in East London since the 20s, Charlie Chapman, uh, Charlie Chaplin uh, performed there, uh, Buddy Holly performed there. It's an old school, it's, it's, it's been there since the early 20s. Yeah, I've heard of that. And they, they do a stand-up, they used to do a, a stand-up comedy competition called the Hackney Empire, New Act of the Year. And it was a big prestigious competition. And all TV industry used to come to see the finals of this competition. Mm -hmm. And I got through to the finals of this competition within, literally within five months of starting doing comedy. I got, wow. got to the finals of this competition and I came second overall in this competition. So there, the talent uh, people were in the audience, talent uh, watchers were in the audience and picked me for this TV show called The Big Big Talent Show with Jonathan Ross. Okay. And he was a huge star in England and I got to be on this talent show. So I was like, and this is within six months of starting comedy. So I was like, I've made it. I've, I've, I've made it. <laughs> I'm about to be a star. I'm on this talent show. I've only been in comedy six months. I am going to be a star. So I did this talent show and nothing really came of it. I, it, was, it was on prime time television, but nothing really came from it. And then a, a few months after that, I got booked onto this show called uh, The A-Force, which was a black comedy show. It's kind of a panel show with comedians. Again, within less than a year doing comedy. And I was one of the hosts of the show. I was on every week. So it was a black show, so they put it in the middle of the night. Didn't promote it at all. But, so, but I, became, I became hood famous in England. Yeah. Within, within a year of doing comedy. So luckily, I didn't understand how stand-up comedy worked. I thought that every time I did a show, I had to write a new set. So I wrote a new set for every single... So within a year of starting comedy, I already had an hour of material. Oh, wow. So when I got hood famous on the show... I, I booked a little 50-seater theatre for three nights and sold it out. And I did an hour set. And this is all within a year of starting comedy. So I'm hold thinking... On. Hold on, hold on. So what are, what are the... Because what are the other... The established comics? Comics yeah. that have been doing their thing for, for longer than you had at this point. You're only doing it a year. You've been on TV a bunch of times. You actually became a regular host 
on one of the shows, are people supportive? Are there, is there a lot of jealousy? They hated me. <laughs> they hated me. The, especially the male, male comics uh -huh. hated um, because like, they, they were like, who is this little cocky little cow? It's come from <laughs> nowhere. And uh, when I was first on the show, do you know Curtis Walker? Uh, no, no. He is uh, in, arguably one of the best male comics in the UK. Standard. Black mm -hmm. cop male comic. Hilarious. Should have been a massive star, but he was, unfortunately, he's born in England. But <laughs> hilarious comic. And... Uh, me and him were both hosts on the show. And he's looking at me, because he'd been going longer than me, and he's, he was already well-known in the black. And he's looking at me going, who is this? So he hated me from the beginning. He, he thought I was one of them people that would kill their own grandmothers to get on. So it took a long time for him to realize, I'm actually a good person. I'm, I'm, I was mouthy and young, but I was, work, I was hard working. And right. I, was, I wasn't just one of them people that, you know, you get a lot of comments, you get a lot of stuff not based on their talent, based on a look, or based on, you know, them fitting a criteria at the time. But it wasn't. Right. Mine was literally based on, I, had, I did have prodigious talent at the beginning. I was. I was really good and, very, and I was very focused because I'm an engineer by trade. Right. And right. I took the comedy like I was an engineer. I was like, right, this is what I'm going right. to do. I had a formula. I do this. I write this amount, then I get to... So that's how I looked at it. And because of that, at the beginning of my career, I got a lot of traction very quickly, but a lot of the comics hated me. They talked, to, they talked about me behind my back, spread rumours. There, there, there was a lot of nasty shit happening uh, when I first yeah. started out. And for the first couple of years of my career, I'd be, like, I'd be really sad. I'd be like, why do these comics hate me? And then it, I had an epiphany. About a year and a half in, I had an epiphany, and I was like, Oh, these guys are threatened by me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. well, I'm going to give them something to be threatened about. And then right. after that, I didn't give a damn what they thought. I was like, oh, I'm going to be the best I could possibly be to make right. them even more angry. But it took a little while, you know, because you want to be liked. Of course. Yeah. And, and, and I would imagine that, that you being, an, uh, you know, the new upstart comic, you probably looked up or admired some of the people that you were getting some of that hate from. Yeah, so it was very disappointing for me. Uh, but me and Curtis, best of friends now. You know, oh, that's dope. We've been, that's we've a, I, I figured that was cool because you said his full name. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, best of friends now because he, he realized that I'm not the person he thought I was. Right, right. You know, and then we bonded and, and we've been friends ever since. Ever that's since. Dope. Like, that's dope. my man right there. The other comics, yeah. Do <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Um, being that because you you know you you you've toured the world as a as a stand up, what would you say the difference in in stand up, if any at all, is in the UK and comedy in general? Because I remember the first time I went there in uh, ninety five to ninety six, um, the the real McCoy, like the like the real McCoy, that was our show, man. right? Everybody that sees this. In Living Color was 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 dope in the in the states, and the real McCoy was their verse, the UK version. Yeah, yeah. And this show was 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 hard. Yo, know, it was it was tough. It was that was a good, yeah. it was a good show. And yeah, if you got on that show, you instantly became famous within the black community. Instantly. Yeah. Like, I never got on the real McCoy. 
It was, yeah, right. I never got on that show. Um, it was a little bit before my time that, right, but right, then right. in the last season, they were starting to book stand-ups, but they never booked okay. me for that show, so I never got on that show. But because this other show, A-Force, that I got on, that, that was what uh, catapulted me to fame uh, right. on the, in the black uh, comedy scene. But Ruben Quay was but our with, Stylistically, would you would you say I just brought that show up because that was my first sort of introduction. I had seen, you know, Lenny Henry and uh yeah. um uh what's the West Indian show? Uh damn. Dexter? What? Which one? I can't Oh Desmond's 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 yeah, so yeah, yeah. Those, that was my introduction to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. Uh, comedy um over over in the UK. Yeah. But would you say there was a difference, if any? Um, between the comedy over here in the States? Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's definitely, there's a lot of similarities in that the, the segregation between the, what the mainstream comedy and what you guys call the urban comedy scene. So in right, England, right. we had a black comedy scene and the, the white circuit. And right. uh, the black comedy scene was in, when I started out in like 95, very vibrant. We, you know, black shows used to sell out big theaters, Big shows, and when you're yeah. doing well on the black circuit, you earn good money. Yeah. Got, because in, on the black circuit, it wasn't just a million comics on a show and nobody cared. You were, if you were you, on that show, it's because you were known and you were kind of a star within that right. black scene. So you got paid accordingly. So you earned more money overall on the black scene, but the right. white circuit was a lot more shows because they had clubs all over the country. And obviously, right. that is where the TV talent went. So right. uh, from the beginning, when I started doing comedy in England, I was like, well, I'm going to do both. And right. at the time, not many people did. You had the black comics tended to stick to the black scene. And then you had some white comics that only did the white circuit and they never really crossed over to the black circuit. There weren't that many comics that straddled the right. line. Uh, right. One of them was Felix Dexter. He was a really talented comic that could do white clubs and the black club, but there weren't many. Uh, so when I started out, I was like, I'm going to do both because I want to be funny to everybody and I want to earn all the money. So right. I'm going to do both. Right. <laughs> uh, but at right. the time, it was kind of unheard of, you know, because a lot of uh, some black comics that did the white scene kind of either watered down what they did or they kind of did, they did that kind of coon type comedy, you know? Oh, I'm a black guy. Oh, right. I'm going to rob, right. I'm going to snatch a purse. All that kind of, they did those kind of jokes. Whereas I was like, hacky. Hey, they were hacky. Yes. Yeah, they were very hacky and, and they kind of did those, we call them coconuts, you guys call them Oreo, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but when I did the white circuit, I was like, I'm just going to be me. Yeah. And if they like me, and, and, it, and that's how it worked, and that's how I got on the big, big talent show in the first place, because the Hackney Empire New Act to the Year competition was a white competition. It was on the mm -hmm. white mainstream circuit. You didn't get many black comics entering for that competition. Right. And uh, so I was, in fact, if I remember rightly, I was the only black comic in the final. So I always made a point of playing both circuits because I was like, I don't want, I don't want to be scared to perform in any, like cause some comics that worked only on the black circuit, if they walked into a room and it was all white people, they got scared because they, yeah. they, they didn't think their stuff would work. And I was like, I never want to be that. I never, I want to be able to walk into any room with confidence and not give a damn who's in the crowd and know that I'm still going to rock it. So I always made a point of work, working both scenes. Uh, right. So that, there's a lot of similarities in England 
between the, 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 the segregations between the two circuits, the, the mainstream comedy circuit and the urban circuit. Right. Uh, and a lot of the material was kind of similar as well, because we've had a lot of very similar experiences, like the hacky black jokes is how you got your ass kicked by your parents, you know, right. all that kind of stuff. It's very similar experiences. Yeah, and on the black yeah. scene, a lot of the material was based on that stuff, that, that recognition of being black, uh, and and the the discipline and the differences between yeah. you know, uh, so a lot of that is very similar. Uh, coming out as a Nigerian comedian in England, there weren't the the black comedy scene in England was very Caribbean, lots of Jamaicans, right. Right. A, lot, a lot of the, the West Indies Caribbean comics, and a lot of their jokes were poking fun at Africans because we were not seen as cool. We always had ashy skin. We always uh, talked with silly accents. Our food smelled or whatever. Right. So, we, so hold up. So, so Nigerians were like how how West Indians treated Haitians over here. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And that's no disrespect. So I say to all my Haitian brethren, but yeah. y'all know that's that back in the days that's how it was. Yeah. Exactly. And, until the Fujis. Exactly. Exactly. So you, you so, were the Fujis of comedy. Exactly. Africans were the butt right. of jokes. So when I came on the scene as a Nigerian comedian. I was doing jokes from my perspective, and I go, really, you want to take, like, all right, let me tell you, Jamaicans, let me tell you about yourselves. Right. Like, because Jamaicans always boasting about how they're the biggest island in the Caribbean. And I'd be like, well, no, Cuba, no, no, not quite, not quite, guys. And I, go, and I do jokes about, you know, Nigeria, you could fit Jamaica into Nigeria, and it wouldn't even look like a shanty town. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> so I used to do jokes like that. And I said, basically come from my perspective as an African right. and hitting back at the Caribbean. So that was my shtick when I first right. started out. And I became quite well known for that. And I kind of spawned a whole generation of African kids going, oh, we can do comedy and talk about our African culture. So I, was, I became the first well-known comedian in England of Nigerian or African descent who talked about my African culture. Right and, right, and I yeah, so I've had a load of people come up behind me who who, who cite me as their kind of inspiration. That's dope. You know? That's yeah. dope. You were you were a trailblazer and trendsetter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When when did you when did you finally you know have the courage, so to say, to to take take what you learned in the UK and say I'm you know I'm ready for Hollywood. I'm ready for the states. Well, I, I came to this, well, as a child, I've always wanted to be in America. Always, always really? wanted to live in America. As a kid, I thought you guys had better candies than us, better toys, better bikes. <laughs> I've wanted to live in America since I was four years old. I'm not even joking. I used to say to my mum as a kid, why, like, you could have gone anywhere in the world. Why did you come here? You, I could have been born <laughs> in Miami. What, what, what the fuck were you thinking? You know, for years, like I, I hated being born in England. I, I was not. <laughs> why? Why did you? Why did you hate it? I hated the weather, and I don't like the cold. I don't like rain. I should have been born in Florida, or should have been born in Los Angeles. I should not have been born in England. It, it just wasn't right. And I was like, you. I, I said to my mom, you came from Nigeria, a hot country, and you came to England. What did you think? So as a kid, I've always wanted to live in America. So when, even when I worked as an engineer, I used to build and repair elevators for a living. I got a job with Otis, the biggest elevator company in the world, which happened to yeah, be an Otis. American company. You always see Otis on elevators. Yeah, 
It's an American company. So even when I was working as an engineer, I worked for Otis because I was like, when I become, uh, get uh, promoted within the company, I want to transfer to America so I can work for Otis in America. So I wanted to live in America all of my life. That's so you plan, you when I got early on. Yeah, so when I got into comedy, I was like, well, that's even better. I'm going to go and do my comedy in America. So I've always dreamed of that. I'd come to New York and, and go to the Boston Comedy Club in the 90s and just watch you guys and, and, and try and get on stage. And I'd come. I remember the first time I came to New York in 94 to do comedy, I stayed at Mugger's house. Mugger. We were just yeah. talking about Mugger earlier. Yeah, because I met Mugger uh, with Barbara Carlyle. They came to England and we did a tour all around England. When I okay. first started out in 95, we toured England. It was called Sisters with Gags, SWG. So it was a play on the SWB because SWG was big those times. We're talking 1995. Yeah. They, they both had just done, we all did Def Comedy Jam that year. Yeah. So 95, yeah. we did a tour in England called SWG, Sisters with Gags. And so I, met, I was friendly with Muga and friendly with Barbara Carlyle. And I was like, I want to come to America. And I came to New York in 95. And I stayed with Mugga, and Mugga took me around to all the clubs in New York. And I remember seeing, going to a club and seeing Tracy Morgan, and I remember going, oh, he's going to be big. And then I went to another club, and I saw Mike X performing, and I was like, oh, he's going to be big. Do you know what I mean? And these were all yeah, guys yeah, yeah. doing the scene before I even knew who they were. Right. Uh, but I saw something in them, you know? So yeah. I've always wanted to be in America. So when the time came, and in England, you know, it's a glass ceiling for black performers, man. I became very well known in England. Everybody mm -hmm. knew who I was, but I couldn't get the same level of success as my white counterparts. So I'd, I'd be on the road and these white guys would be opening for me. And then a year later, they'd be millionaires hosting their own shows. And I'm in the set. And I'd be like, hold oh, on, this thing was opening for me last year. How right. is he getting the opportunity? So in, in the end, I got frustrated. And I was like, you know what? I need to go to America. And right. um, I used to go to Montreal for the Just for Last Comedy yeah, Festival. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one year I was doing a show. It was me, Patrice O'Neill. It was the Uptown Comedy. Uptown. Yeah, it was they, the that, Black Urban Comedy Night at Montreal yeah. Festival. And uh, I remember and, thinking... And, it's, and, and for those that don't know, it's usually that's one of the biggest shows. That's yeah. like of all the shows they do at, at Just for Laughs, the, 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 the Uptown show... <laughs> And I'm not thinking the name. So you're like, Uptown Show, word. Yeah, but yeah. that was always, there was towards the end of the, at, at the end of the um, two weeks. And that was the show everybody came to. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on that show with Patrice O'Neill and someone called, uh, and uh, Ros G. And when Ros, they brought Ros, Ros G out, they were like, you saw her on Last Comic Standing. So I was like, what is this Last Comic Standing? And I looked it up and I found out it was his talent show in America. So I called my agent back in England. I was like, listen, there's this talent show in America. It's called Last Comic Standing. It's, it's only in America and, they, and they're only, as far as I know, it's only American comics that have been on it. Get me on that show. I want to become the first British comedian to compete on that show because that would be my way to get to America. Little did I know that as I was making... Um, you know, inquiries about getting on that show. They'd see me at a club in, in, at the comedy store in London and oh. were looking to bring British and Australian comedians onto the show anyway. 
So I ended up competing on that show in 2007, mm-hmm. and I got through to the finals. And uh, to perform at the semi-finals in LA, they flew us all from England, and they got me a two-year visa. NBC nice. got me a two-year visa. So I was like, so this the visa for two years, even though the competition's only three weeks. So does this mean that I can live and work in America for two years? And they were like, yeah. I went back, sold my house, threw a massive party, gave away everything and sold everything I owned. And I was like, I'm going to America, people, and never come back. I've got a two-year visa. And people were like, you're crazy. It's only a two-year visa. That doesn't mean anything. I was like, don't worry. I'll make this shit work. Goodbye, England. Right. And I left and I turned up for the semi-finals of Last Comic Standing with two suitcases to my name. And I was like, I'm going to win this show, win that 250000 buy myself an apartment, and then I'm going to be launched into TV stardom in America. It's a wrap. And uh, I got knocked out the very next episode. Found right. <laughs> <laughs> myself homeless in LA. <laughs> but I was like, I'm not going back to England. I've already said, I've already told everybody that I'm going to be America and I'm going to be a star. You have a two-year visa. Yeah, I've got a two-year visa. If I have to sleep rough in these streets, that's what's happening. I'm not going back to England. But I made it work. I found an apartment and and just hustled for the next 13 years because I've been here 13 years. And I hustled, um, making my own specials because nobody was giving me specials. I shot my own specials. Did, you know? did, that's what I wanted to ask you. Did you shoot the specials while you were in England or did you shoot them while you were here? I did three specials. The first one I shot in London because obviously I'm more famous in England. So I went back to England, went back to Hackney Empire and shot my first special, Skinny Bitch, there in 2008. So I, I, I you shot it in the place you first started. That's dope. I did. That was full, that's a beautiful full yeah, circle. Full circle. I rented the place out for two nights, sold it out, and it's like a 2,000-seater theatre. Sold it out for two nights, uh, got my own producer, got a camera crew, I paid for it all myself, shot the special, and then brought it back to America with me and sold it to Showtime. I just went to Showtime. I was like, look, here's a special. Do you want it? And they they bought it. They didn't promote it at all. I remember, yeah, I remember you told me. Put it on in the middle of the night, never promoted it. So I was like, because I thought, I've sold the specials to Showtime. Surely, I'm about to blow up in America. Right. It's going to happen. Nothing. Because they put it on, they didn't promote it, they just did nothing. Then I shot a couple of years later, 2012, nothing happened from the Showtime special. So I was like, well, I'm going to make another special. This time, I want to make a special in America. But nobody knows who the hell I am in America. And I I was living in LA at the time. I was like, I don't want to shoot it in LA. Because everybody in the audience in LA wants to be famous themselves. Yeah. So they're too busy looking for their, the camera. Yeah, they're not gonna they're not gonna laugh, they're gonna pose. Yeah, exactly. So I was like, let me shoot it in San Francisco. So I found yeah. a li- little three hundred seater theater in San Francisco. It was three hundred and sixty seats, I remember. It was called the Brava Theater. Beautiful little theater. It was like a baby version of Hackney Empire. Beautiful old theater. And I was like, I can sell three hundred and sixty. I'm gonna give myself a books to the theater. 10 months in advance. And I was like, I can give myself, I can sell 360 tickets in the next 10 months. So what I did for the next 10 months, every weekend, I'd fly up to San Francisco. I'd go and do comedy shows for free, go perform anywhere I could. And then after I perform, I'd stand outside, just handing out flyers, handing out flyers for my show, handing out flyers. And I did that every week for like 10 months. 
And I managed to sell out this little theater, 360 right. seats. I couldn't do it twice. I could only, so I only had one shot. So you had one shot. One shot. I flew my director in from England. So I booked a little Airbnb house in San Francisco because I couldn't afford no hotels. I booked a, a three-bedroom Airbnb. I flew my, flew my director out from London. I said, you're going to have to sleep in the little bedroom. <laughs> a couple of my friends flew out. And we just made this hodgepodge special. He came out, he hired a crew because he knew all the camera stuff. So I flew him out to manage that side of things. So he right. comes out and he hires the crew and all of that. And I just concentrate on the theater, making sure I sell the tickets and write my show. And yeah, I shot this special. It's called Laughing to America. And uh, that is now playing on Netflix. And a mm. year later, though, I shot that, that in 2012. Nobody bought it. So I was selling it after shows. I made right. it to DVD. I made it into like a memory card. And I was selling it after shows. And then years later, I sold it to Netflix. Nice. So now, Kitty Bitch and Laughing to America, both on Netflix, both specials. I shot myself with my right. own money. Which means you own them. So you can, exactly. so, uh, so, and the reason I say that for, for again, for those that don't know, y'all need to understand a hustle but also understand the business savvy because she shot them, which means she can she can sell them to Netflix, and then when when that contract is over, you can you can resell them back to Showtime. Well, that's exactly what I did with um, with uh, Skinny Bitch. I sold it to Showtime. They had it for twelve months, and after mm -hmm. the twelve months, it reverted back to my my ownership, and I sold it again to Netflix. And Laughing to America, I owned it. I sold and then I sold that to Netflix. And then my third special, I shot three specials by myself. My first special was called Ticking Boxes. This time I went back to London and shot it at the Brixton Academy, which is a 3,000-seat music theatre. Uh, and I loved that Brixton Academy because it was my favourite band. De La Soul played there and yeah. Public Enemy played there. So I was like, I want to do my next special there. So I got Brixton Academy, shot that special again, went back to England, knocked it out, same director, shot it. Right. Made it, tried to sell it. No one else would buy it. And I ended up selling it to CISO. That was when NBC decided to do their yeah. version of Netflix. CISO. Right. I sold it to CISO. And, I, and I, to be fair, I was like, eh, I don't know how the CISO thing is going to work out. But Netflix weren't buying it. HBO weren't buying it. Showtime. So I sold it to CISO. They gave me a nice check for it. And then CISO folded the three, right. a few months later. So you got it back. I got it back and I kept all of that money. And then what I did then, I gave it to Sirius XM. Okay. So all my specials now play on Sirius. And I tell you, any stand-up comic who don't know about Sirius, get your stuff on Sirius. Because you get the sound exchange right. That sound exchange money. So sound exchange is like, uh, it's kind of like, uh, in England, it's like equity, whatever your stuff is played, they'll get you your royalties. Yeah. I tell you, those specials playing on Sirius, I made four or five grand a month just off my specials yeah. playing on Sirius. Right, right. And because I, and I own those specials, all that right. money comes to me. Right. So, yeah, I'm all about ownership. Ownership yeah. of, your own, uh, of your own product. So all that stuff belongs to me. And that was only out of necessity because nobody was giving me specials. Nobody was booking me. So I was like, I've got these specials in me. And I'm watching a lot of these mediocre specials 
And I'm like, I, I know I can do better. averages. Those aren't specials. Those are averages. Oh, they're not special. And there's, there's too many of them. There's too many of them. Yeah. There's too it's many of them. It's oversaturated. It's oversaturated. So now specials are no longer special. Right. So. Well, you know what I think? I, in, in, in my opinion, when a special is special, pe people know... You know what yeah. I mean? Like yeah. I think I hit you after your the stand when you're when you're the stand-ups hit. Yeah. I hit you and I was like I was like yo, and, but because you know when you see something dope yeah. versus seeing just a bunch of par for the course, uh, yeah. you know, comedy showcases, right? Because yeah. I won't call them specials. If, if 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 you don't if if people don't walk away inspired, yeah, then it didn't really hit them. You know when yeah. I was coming up. You know, seeing seeing Eddie Murphy inspired me. Seeing Pryor, seeing Cosby, seeing George Carlin, and now contemporary. Watching your joint, watching Deion Cole's joint, watching Billy Burr's joint. You know, watching Ian's special. Those those are the joints that make you say, "Okay, I gotta go right, right." Yeah, that's a, yeah. That, to me, that's, that's special. And I'm watching a lot of these specials, and I'm just like, these people ain't ready. Right, they're not ready. Right. They ain't put the Right. You know, they they have a look or they they, they fit whatever the zeitgeist of the time is, and yeah. it's not about you know comedy's gone the way of music, in mm -hmm. that it, there's no substance. It's about looks and youth, right? And not always the looks and youth are the best, and right. and that's the struggle that I've had in this industry right. where I'm like, I know I'm good enough to have all this stuff, but I'm not getting those opportunities because I don't have the right look. Right. I'm, too, I'm considered too old. I don't fit the 16 to 30 demographic condition. Yeah. Right. So right. I've kind of given up. You're not, you're not a focus group uh, entertainer. Exactly. So I've kind of given up. I was making my specials and I was like, you know what? I'm just going to keep putting out my stuff and just working and just, and just do this stand up until I can't do it anymore. And then I don't know what, what I'll do next. Did you ever get, did you ever get to the point? Um, I don't think you you don't strike me as a type that would feel like ever thrown in the towel but did you ever get frustrated where you're sitting in, in, in your uh, crib either when you lived in New York or when you're in LA and say you know maybe I'm going to go back to England or were you like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this work uh, I never planned to go back to England I mean I was constantly traveling back to England to do shows right, because that's right. where my money was and that's right. where I was most famous so, like, the first seven, eight years in, in, in America, I wasn't making any money in America. Right. So I was constantly on planes going right. back to England to make my money. And then coming in Asia, back... you big in Asia. Yeah, and I tour in Asia a lot. Like, yeah. I've, I spent years traveling around Singapore, Thailand, yeah. uh, Malaysia. Just, so I've become quite well-known in Asia. I will go anywhere where people could speak English and they've got a sense of humor. I will travel. Like... I love what I do so much. And also, yeah. I, I'm a hustler. I'll go wherever the work is. So that's what I was doing for years. But I never, I was never going to give up and go back to England. But I was, there, there were some times, there were some very low times where I was like, I don't know where this is going. Right. I don't know, you know, if I can, you know, should I go into motivational speaking? <laughs> I need to start looking at different ways to make money because I can't see myself you know, when I'm 75, still trying to do five, six shows at a club over the weekend for, <laughs> you know, I, I just can't see myself doing it unless I hit it 
something's going to have to give. So it was getting right. to that point. Right. But, that but, point. but people, I, I asked that for, for the segue that, that I've been waiting for and everybody's how, how, tell us how you wound up because not only, not only do you have a show that you co-created, but you co-created a show with, with Chuck Lorre, who is Big Bang Theory, Mike yeah, and Molly, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, um, uh, uh, the, the, the nerd one. What's the nerd one? Jeez. <laughs> yeah, Big, Big, Big Bang Theory. Big Bang Theory. Yeah. So, Mike you, and you know, you're, you're rocking two and a half with men. Yeah. yeah. Two and a half men. You know, th this, this is a dude that has, you know, is, is a modern Norman Lear who created yeah. classics of the 70s and 80s. So, to please tell tell us the story of how you, you know at, at what could have been you know a frustrating time in your life you know all the hard work all the years of, of focus finally came came to fruition and paid off yeah i mean i've been pitching shows based on my life you know uh, me and devon shepherd got together and we're, uh, in 2018, we were going around pitching a show based on my life to the networks. Nobody bought it. Nobody was interested. Nobody got it. And so I'd kind of given up on the pitching thing. I was like, well, you know, it's like people go, you're, you're very funny. You're very unique. You're very interesting. But we don't know what to do with it. So I was getting a lot of that and got a lot of doors shut in my face. So I was kind of giving up on the pitching thing. I was back there, my stand out. And then I think it was, yeah. July 2018, I'd just come back from Montreal, the Just For Last Festival, had a great time there, had done some great shows, but I wasn't expecting anything of it because I've been going to Just For Last for years and right. destroying shows out there for years and coming back with nothing. So to me, it was just, for me, Just For Last, I did it because I just enjoyed the festival. I didn't expect yeah. to get any deals from it because the way I saw it, they were always looking for these young, even see the young pretty girls or young pretty boys that were getting picked up and given TV deals at Just For Last. So I wasn't expecting to get anything from Just For Last. So I'd just go and do my show. So I came out for Just For Last 2018, and uh, my agent calls me and goes, um, I just got, we just got a call, and I was living in New York at the time. Just got a call, Chuck Lowry wants to meet you. Now, bearing in mind, I'm a stand-up, through and through, straight stand-up. I didn't know who Chuck Lowry was. Oh, <laughs> I don't know who it was. But Nina's laughing in the background. She's like, you idiot. I'm laughing too, Nina. <laughs> my, agent, my agent goes, Chuck Lowe wants to meet you. And I'm like, uh, it sounds familiar. And my agent was like, put the fucking phone down and Google him and call me back, you idiot. Right. So I, I put the phone up, I Google Chuck, I call him back. I'm like, oh, shit, that's Chuck Lawrence. Okay, let's go. And um, so he goes, yeah, Chuck, they want you to, you know, Chuck Lawrence, Warner Brothers, they want you to fly to LA for me. So I'm like, this is great. What, what is this about? And my agent's like, I don't know what it's about. I don't care. It's Chuck Lawrence. You just go. Are so they I'm paying like, for right. the ticket? Exactly. So I said, they're paying for the ticket? And he goes, yeah. And I'm like, well, are they paying first class? And he's like... Uh, I'll call you back. And then he calls you back and goes, no, they're not paying, paying first class because, you know, it's just a meeting and they don't pay for first class. And I was like, listen, I've been on tour consistently for the last six months. I have just come back 
from Montreal. I promised Nina that I'm not getting on another plane for two months. We're taking a, a, a vacation. So if you want me to get on a plane, I just Google Chuck Lorre and he's got more money than God. <laughs> so they better fly me first class. My agent's like, oh my God, put the phone down. Doesn't call me back for another hour. Then he calls me back an hour later and goes, all right, they're flying you first class. And I was like, that's right. So number one, people, know your worth. Exactly. Know your worth. Yeah. So they fly me out to LA first class, put me up in a very nice hotel, Burbank. Obviously, I bought my bed sheets. Don't care how nice the hotel is. Still got my bed sheets. Still got my pillowcase. Still got my special slippers. So, again, walking to a meeting, and it's Chuck Lorre, it's Eddie Gorodetsky, and Al Higgins, who are the two uh, exec producers who uh, produce a lot of these shows. Mm -hmm. uh, so I walk in the room, and sit down, and uh, Chuck goes, so tell us, tell us about you. So in my head, I'm like, what do you tell you about? You guys have just flown me here, first class from New York. How do you not know, know anything about me? But that's it in my head. I didn't say that in the room because I'm not an idiot. Right, right. I, I was like, oh, and I go into the whole spiel of who I am, blah, blah, blah. Start giving it me. Are you, are you, are you doing, are you doing uh, bits or are you just charming them as comics do? I'm charming them. I'm not doing bits, but I'm, you know, I'm talking about myself. And as I talk about myself, I, you know, I'm always funny when I'm talking anyway. So I just put them on myself. So, and then after a while, Chuck goes, oh. he goes, uh, I suppose you want to know why you're here. And I'm like, uh, yeah. And he goes, I love Billy Gardell. And I want to do another show with Billy Gardell. Now, as again, as I said, straight stand up. I don't know who the hell Billy Gardell is. So I'm like, Billy Gardell. Mm. So I should have done my research, really, to be honest. He goes, Billy Gardell. And then he, his eyes kind of shift behind me. And I turn, and there's a massive Mike and Molly post, Mike and Molly poster <laughs> on the wall. And I go, oh, yeah, that Billy Gardell. Oh, yeah, Billy, yeah. Know him well, know him well. And he goes, I love Billy. Uh, we worked together on Mike and Molly. I'd like to do another show with him. And we've had this idea. I went to Africa on vacation, and I came back, and I had an epiphany. I want to make a show with African immigrants, and I don't want to make another Michael Molly. So I'm thinking that maybe we make a show with, where Billy falls in love with a Nigerian woman. I go, oh, okay, that sounds interesting. I'm like, so what? You want me to play the Nigerian woman? And Chuck looks at me and goes, mm, not necessarily. So in my head, I'm like, well, what the fuck am I here for? That's in my head, in my head. In right. the room, I'm oh, in your head. In, in my head, I'm like, I'm like, this is the epitome of white privilege. Just flung me in first class just on a whim for some bullshit. Obviously, I didn't say that in the room. Didn't say that in the room. I was like, oh, interesting. So what would you like me to do? And uh, they're like, well, we're three white guys. We don't know anything about Nigerian culture or black people for that fact. We don't know anything. So we'd like you to consult on the show. So I'm like, oh, you want me as a consultant? What, you want me as an African consultant? So in my head, the bullshit bells are just ringing. Bling, bling, bling. <laughs> bling bling bullshit bullshit but this is bullshit this is bullshit this is bullshit bullshit the bells are just going up but in the room i'm just like it's chuck Lowry. let me just stay calm so i'm like oh interesting you got me to consult okay uh all right okay uh interesting uh, so then i'm like well so how did you find me 
right? right. I'm thinking they're going to go, oh, we've seen your specials on Netflix. We saw you on The Daily Show. We saw you on The Tonight Show. We saw you on Def Comedy Jam. We've done our research. Right. What one of the guys, Eddie, says, oh, we typed into Google Nigerian female comic, and that's how we found you. <laughs> So in my head, I'm like, you motherfucker. I'm furious. I'm furious, thing. I'm like, you didn't even know who I was. You guys mm-hmm. have just blown me first class from, and you didn't even know who I was. You just saw me on Google. Yo, your uh, flight didn't even have your name. It just said your flight had Nigerian female and Nigerian. Like, I tell you, I was like, I could not believe. They, they didn't know anything that I'd done. They, had, they, just didn't, they just went, they were like, we need a Nigerian female comic to help us create this show. And they just typed into Google. And I was the best one that came up. They mm-hmm. found a set that I did in England on a show called Live at Apollo, where I'm talking about my mum. There was a, sh- a clip of a sh- stand-up gig that I did in England when my mum was in the audience. And I did a whole load of stuff about my Nigerian culture. And my mom, it went viral. Like, it had like 15 million hits. And my mum was in the crowd, and my mum stands up. <laughs> and the crowd go nuts. And I'm like, all right, mum, it's my show. You can sit down now. So right. it's like, whole thing. So that was the clip that they found. And Chuck was like, oh, bring her out here to see if she can help us with this show. So that's how they found me. So I'm furious, but I'm, I'm keeping, I'm, I'm, I'm like, oh, okay, tell me more. And uh, so I'm like, so she's Nigerian. Uh, what are you thinking of calling this character? And they went, um, we're thinking Lupita. And I'm like, Lupita, as in Lupita Nyong'o. Okay, this is where you need me, guys, because uh, for one, Lupita is Kenyan. She's Kenyan! Right. Wrong country. She's Kenyan. And number two, she was born in Mexico. That's why her parents called her Lupita. Lupita. I yeah. can pretty much guarantee there isn't another fucking African on the planet called Lupita. So... <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, I leave the meeting and I call my agent and I go, tell them thank you, but no thank you. Mm. It, just, it sounds exploitative. It sounds like they're just going to pick my brains for all things African and then right. just dash me away. I've had my ideas stolen before. Uh, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not feeling this at all. So I said to my agent, please tell them thank you for flying me to LA for a few days, uh, but I'm going to say no. Thank you very much. So I said no. And my agent, thank God, was like, I'm going to let you think about it for a couple of yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. Didn't, didn't call. And then um, I, I'm a person that I, I thought maybe I'm messing up with this. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So I've got my best friend, Lila, in London, and my younger brother, Edwin. They're my two closest advisors. Right. And I called them both up and told them about this. And they both cursed me in stereo. Right. <laughs> for hours. Both of them were like, you idiot. Are you stupid? My younger brother's like, this is Chuck. Even my younger brother knew more about it. He knew who thing. Chuck Lorre was. He's like, because my, my younger brother loved Two and a Half Men and Big Bang. Oh. So he's like, you Gina, you're my older sister, and I have to give you your due respect as my elder in Nigerian cu- culture. 
but I have to speak frankly with you. Take the job, you dumb bitch. <laughs> so he cursed me for two hours. Then Lila cursed me for two hours. And so I then went back to my agent and I was like, all right, look, they flew me in on a Sunday. I was supposed to fly back on the Monday. I'll stay for a day or two and I'll consult on this little pilot that they want to do. And then I'll just take a check and go. We'll see how it goes. So I, I stayed for an extra couple of days and I go in a room with Chuck and Alan and Eddie. And then I can't help myself. I'm a comedian. I start writing. I start coming up with ideas. I start going, well, they could do this, they could do that. Da, 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 da. And I can't help myself. The juices start flowing. And I got in the room with Chuck and I thought, you know what? These guys are listening to me. Okay. They're, they're genuine. It seems they're yeah. genuine. I actually like these guys. Okay. I like Chuck. I'm liking the vibe here. So then I started, my, my inhibitions went away and I just started right. jamming and just throwing in stuff. And I could see them looking at each other like, this is good. So a couple of days, so it went from one day to three days to two and a half weeks. They called my agent and my manager and go, listen, we'd like to keep her here. Uh, we want to actually write a pilot and we cannot write this pilot without her. Forget consultant. We mm. want to make her a producer writer and co-creator on this show so yeah. i was like yeah so i said to my agents what does that mean am i getting paid a lot of money and my agents like, yeah you're gonna stay for as long as it takes i don't care you make that two pairs of underwear last three weeks you're staying so basically i stayed for two and a half weeks in a room with chuck Aaron, eddie and we wrote a pilot now the whole time we're writing a pilot i'm thinking i don't want to be the lead of the show my dream as a comedian, has always been to be the funny friend on someone else's sitcom. That's always been my dream. Funny right. best friend on someone else's sitcom. That's been my dream. So, Less pressure, but more laughs. Exactly. So, I, so as we're writing it, I'm going, you know what? She needs a funny best friend. She needs a funny friend. She needs a funny friend. She needs a friend that she confided. And so we wrote this character, Kemi, but she didn't even have a name at the time. She was just woman on the bus. Originally, she was just woman on the bus. She didn't even have a name. So we wrote the pilot, and uh, CBS were interested. Chuck comes in one day and goes, okay, listen, they'd obviously been talking, thinking, oh, no, we brought in this Nigerian girl to help us write the show. She's going to want the lead role. She's obviously going to want the lead role. And, you know, look at me. I, I know I'm not no love interest. I know what I look like. There's no way I want it to be that. So they oh. came in. Chuck comes in and he goes, all right, look. If you want to play the role of Abishala, he comes in on the offensive. He's like, look, if you want to play the role of Abishala, you're going to have to audition with the other actors. And I looked at Chuck and I was like, I don't want the role of Abishala, Chuck. And he's like, what? And I, I, looked, I pointed to the whiteboard and I was like, I want woman on the bus. And Chuck looked at me and he went, you're very fucking smart. <laughs> yeah. And that is how I became Kemi Abishola's best friend on Bob Hart's Abishola. Because I was like, I don't want to be the lead. I don't want to, I want to be the crazy friend who says all right. the outlandish and outrageous stuff. Because that is way more right. fun for me as a comedian to play than the right. serious lead role. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, of course, of course. And, no, uh, and, yeah. and, and, you know what? I, I just, oh, I, I yeah, people are applauding this story. That's. Uh, I've been wanting to have Gene. I started this in April. 
I think I sent you a message right in like April, May. Yeah, yeah, it was ages ago. And, and you're like, I can't, I want to do it. I can't do it now, but come back. And so I was like, so I waited till right before Christmas. I was like, they should be. <laughs> I know they're back in production, but they should have some time off. And that's why I want to, because when you told me that story, when it, when it, because I remember when you, I remember when you went to LA and yeah. I remember seeing the pictures and I was like, I thought she was only going to be there for like a day or two. She went yeah. out there. Did she move? Yeah. You know? It's, it's well, just that's what I'm And then we, we did the pilot. We wrote the pilot. This was in August 2018. And mm. then I, went, I came back to New York. And yeah. uh, Chuck was like, we'll hear about it. And if it gets, if, the, if CBS picks up the pilot, then you like, so I, and I, I then came back April 2019 to make the pilot. So we made the pilot, and then I said to Chuck, so if, if CBS picks up this pilot, when do we start work on the show? And he's like, oh, we start work first week of June. And I'm like, that gives me four weeks mm -hmm. to pack up my entire life mm. in New York and come to L.A. And he was like, yeah, that's pretty much it. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to make a guess. This show is going to get picked up as Chuck Lorre, surely. And we've written a very good pilot, and there's nothing like this on television. So I, uh, I bought a house in L.A. Everybody thought I was crazy. They're like, what are you? You're buying a house, but you don't even know if this show's being picked up? And I was like, look, best case scenario, I buy a house, show gets picked up. I've got my house to live in while I'm making the show. Worst case scenario, it doesn't get picked up. I've got a really expensive rental property. <laughs> But I'm doing it. So I bought a house. And look at that. We, I closed on the house June 2nd. Uh, started work on the show June 6th. Wow. <laughs> so all worked well, out. And did, wait. And, and the show must be doing well, because didn't you just move again? I just moved again. <laughs> 23rd of December. <laughs> so I bought this house in North Hollywood. Love the house. But it's North Hollywood, man. And if you know yeah. North Hollywood, it's gentrifying. It's coming yeah. up. But it's not there yet. And right. COVID slowed that right down. So every day I'm looking out my window. I walk out of my house in North Hollywood. Beautiful restaurants down one street. Naked meth head on the next street. So <laughs> it got a little bit tiring. I got tired of the noise and the drugs. And, the, and I was like, and then yeah. the pandemic hit. And then Nina came over from New York and she's with me. And she's like, why are we living in all this noise? Let's go and move somewhere a little bit quieter. We're working right. from home yet. Let's work from home somewhere nice where we, look at, we can look at mountains and trees and stuff because you're not commuting to work as much anymore. Right. right. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to keep this NoHo house because uh, the NoHo is going to blow up. So I, I keep the house and I'm going to see. And I, so I, I, we've, I just moved. New house. Yes. New house. New house, new puppy. New puppy. I'm out of the city a little bit. There's yeah. nature trails, there's hiking, it's mountains, it's views, it's clean air, and I can write because my writing room, I'm on, I'm on a Zoom writer's room, so I can sit, clean, right. fresh air with a mountain breeze, and write yeah. in the writing room. And, then, and it's not, I'm not too far out, it's a half hour drive to the studios when I'm shooting. So, right. all good. So, I just moved to get TV money. These, yes. white, yeah. these white boys, Dean, have been earning so much money. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm like, what are these white boys been earning? I'm getting these little crumbs, and I'm like, huh? Is this, oh, this, oh, this is what's been happening. Oh, my God. 
television money, did you? Well, you know. You know. You've been yeah. there. You're on no, SNL. No, you know. No, I, I'm coming back. Oh, my God. Seriously. I'm, I'm like, I love my stand-ups, but I'm going to cling on to this TV producing thing as yeah. long as I can ride that train. Yeah. So well, plus, I mean, because you're, you're not, that's the, what's wonderful about the position that, that you're in is, you know, now you're a creator. Uh, you're a creator next to, you know, one one of the great modern uh, TV writers. And so yeah. that that raised your stock immensely yeah. so that now when, when you're so ready much. to start your own so I've just been soaking in as much as I can. I'm learning so much about the whole writing process. Uh, you know, I got bumped up to exec, a co-exec producer for season two. So I'm just, nice. I'm just learning and soaking up. And then what my plan is now is to eventually bring in other creators. Like I managed right. to get black, black writers in the writing room. Right. I got black writers right. in the room. Because yeah. I said to Chuck, listen, this, you're, you're right. this is a black show now, Chuck. This is a black right. show. So <laughs> we use the black writers. You can't have the right. same old white men that you've had all along. So here's some very funny comedians that I know. Right. And so, yeah. yeah shout out to Mark Theobald. I just saw Mark just put a bunch of dollar signs. <laughs> <laughs> just yeah, man. <laughs> so, yeah, we've got black writers in the room. So I've got black people into Chuck universe yeah. who would never have got a chance to get in the rooms before. Stop, stop. So, and that's what I'm doing. I'm all about bringing in as much black talent. Because I said to Chuck, listen, you guys found me on Google. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of me's out there. Yeah. I am not an anomaly. There was a, there's a lot of talented black writers and producers out there. Yeah. That, you know, you found me. You're lucky you found me. But yeah. I can help you find others and make you even right. more money. So right. let's do business. So that's what right. my plan now is, is to, to get to a point where I maybe get like an overall deal type of thing going on with Warner Brothers, where, that, where then I can now turn around and bring through more black talent and, yeah. co and, and exec produce other works from other black writers right. and creators. That's what I want to do. As well as I'm going to still keep doing my stand-up. Stand-up is always my first love. Of but course. I'm getting old now. I can't be doing those comedy condos and six shows over a weekend. I want to go in, do a one big theater one night, Bang, get right. my money back. That's what I want to do. I want to do theatres now. I'm done. Uh, I, I love the comedy clubs, and I will still work for the comedy clubs that booked me when nobody right. else was. The Gothams, right. the Comedy Cellars, the Comedy and Magic clubs, you right. know, those clubs that booked me when nobody else was booking me, right. I will always go and work for them. Right. The but, clubs, but, but your quote, you're, you're on TV, you, you, you have a regular character role, so your quote gets to go up a little bit. Well, that's what I'm hoping. I don't know, because I'm on CBS. And CBS, like, hey, you, want, you watch, see that, look at the Instagram numbers of the people that are on HBO. Like, yeah. Yvonne Orji, good friend of mine, she's on yeah. Insecure, Insecure, which doesn't yeah. get a fraction of the number of viewers that my show gets, because it's on HBO rather than CBS. Right. But she's got a million followers on Instagram. Right. I'm on CBS. I get average of six million views a week on my tv show right. i got a hundred thousand followers right. <laughs> you know why because cbs is all old white people <laughs> right so i don't know if that will translate to my comedy club right tickets out. i don't know 
Uh, yes. I was about to test it in early 2020 when I had my three months off. And I was looking forward to hitting Gotham and hitting all those clubs and seeing if I yeah. sell more tickets based on the TV show. But then COVID ruined all that. So I have no idea as right. to whether the, the TV show will actually up my cachet as a stand-up. I'm hoping it does because I'm hoping yeah, it's I, you know, I think that, it will, because because Brad Garrett, um, went, you know, in, in the at the peak of everybody uh, loves Raymond. Raymond was getting paper, but so is Brad Garrett. So right. you know, I, I'm I'm sure just like uh, uh, Billy Gardell's, you know, quote shout out from Mike and Molly, and also yeah. Bob Hart's Abishola, you're on that show, and and, and yours will too. Um, you know. I very much hope so, because yeah. I love my stand-up and I look forward yes. to being able to go and fill out large venues. Because I yes. know that I've got the chops. Yes, you do. You, know, you see those people that are on TV shows and then you go to see their stand-up and they're horrible. Whereas I've been honing my stand-up for 25 years, yes. waiting for that opportunity for people to come out and see me. And I go, ta-da! You didn't right. know I had this! Right. Whereas before, I've, the last few years, 13 years in America, I've been struggling to get people to come to my show because nobody knew who right. I was. So I'm hoping now I'll be able to actually bring my stand up to a wider audience. And hopefully, Netflix will give me another hour special, proper hour. Yeah. And let's do this. Yeah. And give it all these specials to all these other randos. Come on now, Netflix. Give yeah. me my special. It's time. Yes, it is. Yes, it, it is. It is time. And before I let you go, you also have a. A new book that uh, you have you finished your book? I finished my book, it's coming out in June this year. It's called Cack Handed, which in England is a word for left handed, it means left handed, which, which is what I am, but it also means cack handed, also means awkward and clumsy, which is kind of what I am, and it's kind of how my career has been, where I've yeah. kind of you know, it's been I've kind of come at it this way, come at this way, and had to come this way. So that's why the book is called Cat Handed. So it's basically a memoir of my life in England, uh, my upbringing, the difficulties I've had uh, through my childhood and teenage years, and up to starting comedy and the struggles I had in England, and what led me to leave England and come to America. So mm -hmm. that's what the book, that is out in June. Go to my profile. The link for the, uh, the pre-order pre is there in yeah. my profile. Get the book. Because I want to make that book. into a TV show or a film so that I, my cachet goes up as a producer yes. and then I can help other black creators. Yes. So buy my book so I can help other black people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Go, hey, everybody on here and everybody that watches this later and everybody that hears this later, go go make sure you pre-order Gina Yasha Ray's book, Cack <laughs> Handed. Yeah. Um, make sure you go and watch her numerous specials that are available on Netflix or if you have Sirius XM, make sure you listen to them when you hear them and, and make sure you watch a very funny show co-created by my friend and yours, Gina Yassere. Gina, thank you. We love you for, for, for taking you, some time and sharing, sharing so your, 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 you're an inspiration and, and, and I'm glad, you know, that everybody that sees this or hears this gets a chance to understand not only how, how how dope you are as a comedian, but how dope you are as a person and how much hard work you put in to in the last 25 years to to be able to have a, a, a wonderful house that your new puppy pees on your <laughs> sheepskin. <laughs> White boy money. White boy money. Get, get, get that 
Get that TV white boy money. <laughs> Gina, have fun. Have fun uh, starting back at work tomorrow, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care, Dean. Good to see you, man. You too. Cheers. I'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Sign off to everybody. Everybody, thanks for hanging out um, on another episode of, of the Father Market Protocol. Um, we do this every week. Next next Monday, we're back to our regular um, scheduled um, Monday night. And I have my man from The Daily Show, um, Roy Wood Jr. I apologize because I know a couple of people um, – Couple of people had mentioned Gina. Yes, Gina Yashere was also um, a correspondent on the Daily Show. And shout out to uh, Trevor Noah and crew for for reaching out and making sure she she got some shine on there. But wasn't that a wonderful wonderful story? I'm I'm glad y'all got to hear because I I just think that's like we don't give enough credit and, and big up everybody else that that um you know gets an opportunity um and has had an opportunity in Hollywood, but. I think that's one of the great um, Hollywood success stories. And it's still going, you know. Um, this is your man, Dean Edwards. Next next Monday, Roy Wood Jr., 11 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Pacific. It's your man, Dean Edwards, for the Welcome Protocol Live. All love, y'all stay up. Happy New Year to everybody. Uh, we salute the all. Y'all be safe. And and I hope we inspired you all to go and and continue to be great. I thank you, uh, uh, Key Michelle, comedian Natasha Face, Miss Abadola, Adabola, sorry, Mahali Yas, all the y'all take or dip. And I will see you all uh, next week. Uh, the real G71 does not happy new year to you. I all love y'all. Two fingers, please. Yes, I'm sure I want to end the video.